yeah, I think the, 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 the entanglement in quantum is like the, the P90X for your, for your, for your brain. Welcome to Sandbox AQ's podcast, FAQ, where we work to separate fact from fiction on all things related to artificial intelligence and quantum technology. That includes concepts. It also includes applications. My name is Adam Green. I'll be one of your hosts on the show, and I'm lucky to be with our co-host, Ty Dene Bradley. Hi, Ty. Hi, Adam. How are you today? It's a, it's a good day. It's going to be a strange day, I think, though, because our topic for today is entanglement. Yeah. And I, yeah, I have to tell you, <laughs> entanglement is one of those things that in my journey of learning about quantum mechanics and, and just the AQ space has been one of the more confusing things for me. Um, interesting because I like to get confused by things, but mm -hmm. I don't think I've like rounded the bend yet from being confused to being like yeah. inspired by this new knowledge that I now possess about entanglement. Yeah. In this case, I don't think I'm quite there yet so i'm excited to talk with you about uh about this today and, and kind of get your your spin on entanglement so i think i'm going to just throw it over to you and and like would love to hear from you what is entanglement can you can you bottom line that as best you can for for me and all of our listeners and viewers <laughs> yeah well adam no pressure here <laughs> um so yes thank you for for throwing that in my direction um maybe i i want to give a disclaimer first so i'm i'm very excited to talk about entanglement today on our episode we have some things on our list of ideas surrounding it to chat about. But first, I think as I do in every episode, I just feel, you know, like I must give this disclaimer <laughs> so that pe people don't throw tomatoes at me, which is I'm not a physicist. Um, and I, I like you, am still trying to wrap my head around this concept. And maybe people are like, what's, what's there to wrap your head around? Why are they hinting that it's confusing? And so maybe people will see that in a second. Um, so I'm going to try and by, my best. And by best. the way, if, if people are out there and they, they are not confused by this, like, yeah. and they know it, like the back of their hand, like, <laughs> Please hey, come let tell us know. <laughs> yeah. Like, write yeah. in the comments. We'll, we'll have you on the show. This is all about like sort of a journey of discovery and uh, y'all are yeah. on the path with us in this journey of discovery. So we'll, we'll get as yeah. far as we can. Yeah. Here, here. Okay. Now, I know that you asked me to just, you know, give a bottom line or how I might think of a, a bottom line way to think about it, but I'm not going to do that if that's okay. Instead, instead, I was reading a book recently, and in fact, I think the name of this book will, will come up later in the podcast, so I'm going to kind of open, open us with it. It's a book that I really enjoyed reading. It's called The Fabric of the Cosmos by Brian Greene. We'll hear more about this later in the episode. I really enjoyed how Brian Greene, who is a physicist, introduced this concept of entanglement in his book, which I think is a gentle, it's like someone gently walking your hand into this very confusing landscape called entanglement. So I'm going to try to read some of this, and I want to I get your feedback and see what you think. So do I have permission to read a little bit? Absolutely. No, I haven't. Okay. I've heard of this book, but I've never read it. So uh, we can have okay. a little, little entanglement story time with Ty Dene. Story time. Okay. <laughs> story time with Ty Dene, uh, uh, a la Brian Greene's Fabric of the Cosmos. Okay. So okay. here we go. Ready? Yes. Okay. If there is space between two objects, if there are two birds in the sky, and one is way off to your right, and the other is way off to your left... We can and do consider two objects to be independent. We regard them as separate entities. Okay, you're nodding your head. That seems like okay so far, right? Fair enough. Okay, I, I agree. Two birds in the sky, they're doing their own thing. They're separate because there's some space in between them. So they're separate things. Okay, Green continues. Space, whatever it is fundamentally, provides the medium that separates and distinguishes one object from another. That is what space does. Things, occupy different locations, things occupying different locations in space are different things. I think we agree so far. Yep. Okay, good. Moreover, mm, moreover, for one object to influence another, it must in some way negotiate 
the space that separates them. I like that, that word, negotiate. So Brian Greene gives an example. One bird can fly to the other, traversing the space in between them, and then peck or nudge its companion. Okay, so to get from here to there, I have to traverse or negotiate the space in between. Or another example, one person can influence another by shooting a slingshot, causing a pebble to traverse the space between them, or by yelling, causing a domino effect of bounding air molecules, one jostling the next until some bang into the recipient's eardrum. Okay, this is this makes sense to you, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, it makes sense to me and hopefully to our readers too. And then it makes sense to Brian Greene. He says, to be sure, if we are over here, we can influence someone over there, but no matter how we do it, the procedure always involves someone or something traveling from here to there. And only when the someone or something gets there can the influence be exerted. This makes sense. This is like, we knew this in kindergarten, if not before, like we, like duh. Okay. So what's the, what's the issue here? Why are we talking about like human 101? Ah, the next later, later in, in this book, um, a following paragraph begins with the word, but, hmm, but, but a class of experiences performed during the last couple of decades has shown that something we do over here, such as measuring certain properties of a particle, can be subtly entwined with something that happens over there, such as the outcome of measuring certain properties of another distant particle, without anything being sent from here to there. Wait a second, what? So I feel like this word but threw in a wrench into the argument. So now if you change your discussion from birds and people to particles, now things get a little bit counterintuitive. So mm -hmm. the conclusion is, Brian Greene writes, this means that space cannot be thought of as it once was intervening space, regardless of how much there is, does not ensure that two objects are separate. Why? Because quantum mechanics allows an entanglement, a kind of connection to exist between them. Okay, so there's that word entanglement, what suggests that it has to do with the fact that in the quantum realm, it is possible for one object, which happens to be very small, like a quantum particle, to have some kind of influence on another object, on another quantum object or particle, without there actually being any negotiation of the space in between. So this phenomenon, which is unique to the quantum world, is what's called entanglement and in giving that kind of long-winded bottom-line answer, we've also now seen why it's kind of a counterintuitive thing because it goes against our daily experience with birds and people and pebbles. Wow, yeah. that was a lot. What is going through your mind right now? <laughs> I mean, I really like that explanation. I think that's helpful good. to set up that context. Yeah, it's really good. I We're like kind it. of moving, moving away from human 101 and into yeah. uh, quantum mechanics or particle particle life 101 um, yeah so yeah it's also seems like a ridiculously big deal but <laughs> it because it's so different from <laughs> our normal experience it feels incredibly foreign to me of how can you yeah. negotiate that space without negotiating that space like how can you affect something that is separated by space while ignoring the space that's separating them, not sending any signals. There's no winks or nudges or shouts right. or pebbles. Um, yeah. So how, how does that work? Yeah. I think no one has an answer. I mean, <laughs> if someone has answered, like, let us know. But I think the whole point of entanglement and why it's so fascinating is that this is like an unsolved mystery, like a very mind boggling thing. It's kind of, it is what it is. Oh, and we should say, Adam, this is not like a theoretical idea. This like entanglement, you can create it in a lab 
right now. Like people are using it. It's, it's part of quantum technologies, which is, you know, like a focus of this podcast. So just for the record, what we're talking about is not some um, like wishy-washy thought idea thing, but it's an actual reality. And the reality is we don't quite understand everything about it, but it's, it's like for real, for real. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an incredibly important point and makes it seem yeah. even stranger to me of like, uh, yeah. you can demonstrate it you can use it like in, uh, in quantum yeah. information science, um, yeah. and you, it's being leveraged now, um, and will be yeah. leveraged even more in the future yet. We don't fully understand it. And, even more like, you know, I'm a research scientist that's uh, I have a research scientist background. That's kind of like my training. And I always thought that anything that we don't know, it's just because we have some kind of limitation. We haven't figured it out yet. Uh, we need a different tool to figure it out or a different philosophy or some kind of different way of looking at it to, to figure out that thing. And what I'm, what I hear sometimes when talking about entanglement is, yeah, that might not work for <laughs> right. entanglement. Yeah. It's not, it might not just be a matter of time before we get it. It just might not be gettable. And I yeah. think that's what, uh, like what draws a lot of people into thinking about quantum mechanics, being excited by it and mm -hmm. wanting to like be a part of that system. I think that's right. also what drives some people away from it right. and, and what can sometimes bring this like mystical, almost mystical, yeah. um, like, you know, feeling around some of these topics and entanglement, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. You know, the interesting thing about that, I mean, I can't resist sharing this, but like the previous concepts that we have discussed on this podcast, there's like the physics concept, the phenomenon whether previously we discussed qubits or superposition and now entanglement. But then there's also the mathematical description of that idea. The funny thing, maybe it's not funny, it's interesting, is that actually the mathematics that one can use to describe this idea called entanglement is very straightforward. And in fact, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, simple in the fact that if someone has taken like a first-year class at a first year undergrad class in linear algebra, I think they have everything they need to understand entanglement from a math perspective. We've talked about before this thing called linear algebra and how it's pretty fundamental to quantum physics. So on the math side, it looks very innocent, you know, and, and, I, and I've said this before, it's kind of like you write down the math and you're like, okay, like next, like now what? It's not a big deal. <laughs> but, but beneath all of that, when you actually look at the physical situation that the mathematics is modeling it's like wow kind of kind of mind bendy like you were saying so that's just curious a curious thought and maybe we can chat about the math another time but that's something sure. i can't resist saying you know yeah no thanks for bringing that up and i mean part of me wants you know to ask you to start to go through the math right now but i think maybe maybe we should save that for a little bit later we've sure. established that this is a a pretty meaty deep topic and that we might need a little bit of assistance and we have yeah. a little bit of assistance of a, a friend of the faq uh podcast show um that we can that we can bring in maybe you think it's maybe a good time to to bring bring them in yeah, let's do it. I'm really happy to uh, welcome friend of FAQ, Adam Lewis, to the show. Adam is the technical lead of the simulation and optimization team at Sandbox AQ. Adam, welcome. Hi, pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. I think maybe a, a nice way to get things going is if you could uh, talk with, uh, with our audience a little bit about your academic background. Um, so where did you go to school? What did you study? Um, those sorts of things. Sure. Well, so I first decided to become a physicist at about 17. I read a book in high school, like a popular science book um, called The Fabric of the Cosmos, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I've been doing like okay in, in physics, but uh, I didn't really have a clear path of what I wanted to do. So I did that. And I also really liked kind of liberal arts style subjects. So I did this program they had at McMaster University in Hamilton called Arts and Science which is a little misleadingly named because every faculty in the world has a department of arts and science. But this was this weird like high school round two thing where there were like 50, like 50 60 students. Like we all kind of took the same weird kind of 1910-ish like liberal arts curriculum where we like read like Gilgamesh and stuff all together. And it was a lot of fun. And then I kind of moved into a physics double major with that on the side. So that, that was quite enjoyable. So I always had more of like a kind of more philosophical interest in physics, which, uh, you know, Kind of changed later on because now I work in industry, but, but there you go. Um, so that happened. 
Then I went and got bored and I taught in English and Korea for a year. And then I got bored of that also. And so I applied for uh, my PhD at the University of Toronto. Uh, I did a master's degree in like pen and paper general relativity theory. And then my supervisor turned out to be too old to supervise me. So he, he became an Aretas professor. And the only other person working on gravity at the time, I, already, I also had an interest in computer programming, but the only other person working on gravity at the time was a numerical astrophysicist named Harold Pfeiffer. So I worked on doing simulations of black hole binary merger and in spiral using, uh, my project was to take this code and basically port it to run on GPUs and GPUs are a kind of, um, a kind of uh, computer architecture that has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. And uh, I ported this code to run on GPUs. And then I did a postdoc at the Perimeter Institute at Waterloo, Ontario, where I tried to use what are called tensor network methods to do simulations of quantum fields in the vicinity of black holes instead of just black holes colliding into each other. It turned out, however, that there wasn't enough of the theoretical work done to actually formulate the simulation in the first place. So I basically spent my postdoc trying to write down some of the basic correspondences that would allow you to take a computer program and use it to reason about the, the, the relevant quantum field theories, basically. And that was kind of fun. So I actually have a single author like math paper on this very obscure technique called like Hadamard normalization, which it's a very niche paper, but it took me a very long time to write. I'm proud of it because, um, because of that. But uh, yeah, then that was a lot of fun. Um, and then I had like a choice to make. This was just before the pandemic. I was either going to go to London, like England, and continue this work and try to generalize the work I had done to more realistic black holes, basically. But also the professor I'd been working with had just recently taken a job at Google X to do uh, what are called like other tensor network simulations. And I'm not specialized to gravity, but just in general, the technique that we were using and run them on certain kinds of computer architecture that Google had happened to have. And I thought that would be kind of fun for a year. So I went there and I, I actually didn't end up going because the pandemic happened. So I just did this remotely for a few years. And then the team I was on spun out into the company, which I now work for, Sandbox IQ. And we uh, took some of the work we did and, uh, but more importantly, some of the learnings about the industry that we gathered during the course of the work. And now I work in a more strategic role for, uh, I, I help direct the technical strategy for the simulation optimization team here at Sandbox. I think that's amazing. So you started working with general relativity in black holes, which I don't I don't understand everything, but there's like quantum field theory stuff happening near the black holes. Um, so somehow you like transition from the physics of as large as possible to now the physics of as small as possible, where you're now working essentially. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, please continue. Um, no, that's it. You're now working on, you know, quantum. Well, you're working at Sandbox AQ, where the Q stands for quantum. So I just think that's very intriguing how your journey has taken you from, you know, simulating physics of black holes, general relativity, to now simulating things at the really tiny scale. Hmm. Now, it gets a lot smaller than what we're simulating, to be clear. But, but to be fair, yeah. but, uh, we're simulating like uh, electrons and atoms, yeah. which are which pretty, are pretty small, small. But yeah. Oh, uh, but it does get smaller. Yeah, but they're not That's... as small as micro black holes. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So we should talk about micro black holes another day. But today... <laughs> Probably. <laughs> or not. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want. It's your life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would like to know what a micro black hole is, but not right now. We have a, a topic that we do want to focus on today and ask you a few questions on, and that topic is entanglement. Now, I think this is a word that probably many or at least a few of our listeners have heard before. Maybe they're already familiar with it, but it could be also a word that's you know used in a lot of pop sci articles, or if you just scroll through social media these days, you see buzzwords about quantum computing, something, something entanglement. So from an outsider's perspective, one gets the feeling that entanglement is important, maybe a little bit foreign. It's not like something we learn in kindergarten. So it's like this new thing, but it has this feel of importance. So just to maybe get the, the conversation started, before we, we dive into what is this thing called entanglement, can you kind of explain to us why you think it's important in the first place? Or if someone is just jumped into this podcast and why should they keep listening? What's your kind of elevator pitch for why entanglement is important to physicists? Why it's something physicists care about? Why? Mm -hmm. 
you know, I have a pretty living live, live mentality. If people want to listen to this or not, I kind of feel like that's their prerogative. But I can tell you why uh, I find entanglement interesting. Um, well, you know, actually, maybe I can't. But I can tell you what it is. So, <laughs> there's a, uh, so entanglement to me is the situation that can occur in quantum mechanics where you can't, there's more information in studying the whole of a system than in individually studying its individual parts. So like you might have, say, two rocks, and you can look at the two rocks independently, and you might learn something about each independent rock, but there's there's more to the system of, of the two rocks together than you could have achieved without comparing them to each other in, in a way that's not possible classically. And the reason to me this is important is that it if you analyze this carefully, it turns out that this reveals that it's difficult to make sense of the idea of, of reality that behaves the way that you sort of expect it to, in that things have definite properties that persist independently of being measured. Um, and I think this is something you talk about in quantum mechanics a lot, but I think it's usually possible to come up with some kind of classical explanation that is equivalent to, like you could always have, you know, you can talk about how quantum mechanical systems are random or something, but it's possible to make classical systems that are random too, and maybe you just can't see why the randomness is happening. But it's only really when you start entangling the systems together that you can come up with an experimental demonstration that shows that that kind of analogy isn't possible. So that's why they're interesting to me. Is it's it's kind of the real thing that makes the world quantum in the way that physicists mean from a, from a more metaphysical point of view. Personally, that's how I think about it. Interesting. So, like, is it fair to say that entanglement is is a, sort of an embodiment of an emergent property of a system? Like, so instead of taking this reductionist view, like, and, and looking at all the rocks independently and getting their properties and how they should work, that there's this other this other thing on top of that entire system that you would call entanglement that is a, a property of the system and all the components in it, like an emergent sort of thing. I wouldn't use the word emergent because, I mean, an emergent property may ultimately, so first of all, yes, I think that's right, but I'm going to make a subtle distinction between Please. the exact word choice. So the, um, I would say it reveals that there's a holistic property to the system that is not possible. And I want to distinguish between holistic. Holistic means that there's like more to the whole than the sum of the parts. And emergent, which means emer an emergent property is ultimately reduces to the sum of the parts, but it might be hard to keep track of. So like something like, you know, a chair being hard, ultimately that is due to it being made of atoms or something. And in principle, if you had like infinite computational power, you could keep track of that and you could derive the hardness of the chair from the atoms. So that's an emergent property, but it's still ultimately reductionistic. Whereas entanglement is something that I would say doesn't necessarily add up. Like from, you can't, there's just no way in principle to only study the components without comparing them to each other and derive that they were entangled. You have to compare them and see and look at the whole. Okay, I think I, I think yeah. I'm starting to track, and sure. this might be a, a, like a, an odd question to ask. Hopefully, you can you, you can you can help me uh, grasp this a little bit. So, it, was this idea of entanglement? How did it come about? Like, did it come about because there was this gap? in this holistic knowledge of looking at a system and like we need to figure out um, like a theory or something that that fits the data that we're observing or was it the other way around where there was a, a, a theoretical idea of this this holistic property called entanglement and it and then it, and then it was kind of um, scientists and engineers were hunting for data that would fit this idea of entanglement or vice versa does that does my question make sense yeah, no, it's definitely a theoretical construct that later was verified by observation. But the exact history, I mean, I'm always nervous trying to give kind of little <laughs> histories of science because there's a long body of historical literature about why scientists do terrible things when they attempt to give such histories. But I'm still going to give a kind of like textbook physics history anyway, and I'm just not going to ignore all that. So here's, here's the um, here's the kind of like, uh, you know, traditional uh kind of like eurocentric imperialist history of why this would happen so there's the uh basically as i as i i haven't thought about this specifically but my understanding is first it, like the first thing is it's possible just using the formalism of quantum mechanics so i'm really zoomed in <laughs> to, to like write down systems that have the property i described so like you know where like measuring one system has an effect on the other basically now that's not obviously connected to this holism thing i just spelled out and i actually think it is kind of subtle to connect that manifestation of entanglement but um let me back up first so 
Another another more common way of presenting the phenomenon of entanglement, aside from this like whole sum of the parts thing, I think that's closer to the mathematical definition than like the way it's usually presented. But um, another accurate manifestation of it is that if you have two systems which are entangled, then observing one of them also will affect future observations of the other. So let's say I have like two coins that could be heads or tails, and like you know, God tells me that there's a 50-50 chance of being heads or tails, and I believe them. So I know for sure that the two coins have a 50-50 chance of being either heads or tails. If they're entangled, then like observing one of them will change that the other one had a 50-50 chance. So if I look at one of the coins and its heads, now, depending on the form of the entanglement, I can, I'm now guaranteed the second coin will also be either heads or tails. Does that make sense? So, like, so it might be it might be such that if I see heads, the other one will also be heads. Let's just take that for for, for concreteness. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 what you just described, I understand the uh, the words that you're saying, <laughs> but mm -hmm. like uh, understanding why that is true or how that actually works is is kind of uh, beyond me at the moment, and and hopefully maybe we well, can get to that a little bit. I don't think I even understand why it's true, and that's sort of part of why physicists are so interested in this. Like it, it kind of like really highlights the thing about quantum mechanics that's difficult to understand intuitively. I, I think that's that's actually the central reason for the interest. Um, like, how could it be that looking at something might change something about something else that's like arbitrarily far away? It's it's hard to come up with a, a good reason for that, I, I would say. And yet, it appears to be the case. Um, okay, but back to the historical question. So, um, so right, uh, I forget who first came up with the word entangled, but someone had observed that it was possible to write down quantum states, as they're called, which had this property where like looking at one affects the other. And, they, and this person just kind of casually in their paper said that the two states were entangled. Why would they referring to like this literal in the sense that they were like literally enmeshed in some way, that, that, they, that they mutually affected each other? Um, and then I'm not sure of the order of events, but at some point, probably the first part of the story that most physicists are familiar with is, like, is this EPR paradox by Einstein Polensky, Podolsky, Podolsky, the key person. Yeah. Podolsky and Rosen, yeah. So I'm not, Einstein's of course the most famous of the three, but, but there you go. So this paradox basically, they essentially pointed out that, that, that it would be if quantum mechanics were followed, possible to affect arbitrarily distant objects by measuring them. So there could be a situation where two things were entangled as we call it now, and observations on one subsystem, as we would call it now, affect results on the second subsystem, as we would call it now. Now let me use less abstract words. So I have two coins, and they're entangled, just that's a given. Now if I look at one of them, and I see its heads, I'm now, that will change whether a different person looking at the second coin sees that they've added its heads or tails. So the fact that I looked at the coin changes the results of the other person's looking at their coin. And then the EPR team kind of concluded that this was clearly impossible, and that there must therefore be some underlying thing that was actually dictating which coin was heads or tails. So me looking at the coin isn't what caused it to be heads. It always was heads. I just didn't know that because quantum mechanics is incomplete, as they put it. There's some additional information that is not included in quantum mechanics, which governs which coin is heads, which one is tails. And whatever that information is, which they didn't specify in the paper, the point of this paper was to argue that there had to be some additional thing besides quantum mechanics that, that determined this. Yeah, and like, for example, a possible additional thing could be, and, and this is not true, but like one could think, oh, maybe there's something mediating through space that's like informing the second coin, the results of what happened with the first coin. Like that could be an example of something that's like maybe a hidden variable, which I think was their, their phrase or they something. Didn't, they that's didn't missing. use the word hidden variables. Oh, so they only pointed who used that? Somebody. That, 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 that's from Ben Um okay. But EPR just argued that quantum mechanics must be incomplete. So, okay. but yeah, I think, and I don't think even what you're saying is impossible. There, there, there it could be that there is such a thing. Although it turns out later that there's constraints upon how that could work. Um, but yeah, that would be a pretty common example. It's like there's the two coins. Right. So maybe they were maybe So one, the most obvious way is that there's a common cause of both coins being heads or tails. So it never was random in the first place. The only thing that was random was I didn't know which one was heads and which one was tails. But another way it could work is they are random. But then when I look at one, it like calls the other one on the phone or something. 
and then like if the other one's like oh crap i'd better be heads right and then like so that that would be another way that, that it could be incomplete there could be a, like a mediating agent of some kind yeah Okay, but I don't really like this example because coins, I'm sorry, but coins are not entangled. Like if I have two quarters, they're not. Well, they could be. They could be? Why not? It's a free country. <laughs> but I don't think I don't I don't I don't think that that's uh, an observable uh, thing that, that <laughs> well, would Well, it would be hard to do because they're like big and stuff, but like you could again hypothetically right. you could very you could chill a coin really hard and like that would be conceivably possible to entangle with another coin. I think we're getting back into some of Adam's theoretical roots here. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sure could be possible, but yeah, tied to name, maybe we can keep going on that track. I mean, I guess what I was thinking is that um, usually, well, actually, so this is a question. So I'm a person and I'm walking down the street and I would like to know, is there some phenomenon that occurs in nature that I am familiar with that is a result of entanglement. So I'm going to give an example, not for entanglement, for, but for something else. So I'm sitting on a chair that is made up of a bunch of molecules and atoms, and I'm not falling through the chair because there are electrostatic forces that are kind of holding me up. So that's an example of something called force that that I experience in my day-to-day -day life, okay? Is there an example like that for entanglement? And I was thinking that a coin, you know, two coins is not really an example because I guess if one worked really hard, one could try to entangle two coins, but this, but not really. So is, is entanglement something that in retrospect after the EPR paper and whatnot, we're like, oh, that's why the sun rises. I mean, that's not it, but you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, that's why fill in the blank. So kind of, I mean, not so the isolated effect of entanglement in the sense I'm describing is honestly pretty hard to distill from nature. You really have to set up like a pretty isolated experiment to come up with coin-like examples. So you probably have not encountered, unless you have a very unusual life. It's unlikely that your day-to-day -day walking down the street results in you encountering one of these experiments. Um, so, um, but on the other hand, there are systems which still are a little exotic, but like, which not directly because of this manifestation of entanglement, but simply are strongly correlated with each other. So we, we talk about strongly correlated systems and that, that's like physics talk for entangled. So these are things like superconducting magnets or like superfluids. These are also pretty exotic quantum phenomena. You also probably don't run it in the street much, but they do, they're at least a little more common than, uh, <laughs> than like, you know, set up. They might become more common. Like, I mean, if you ever happen to have a quantum computer on your phone one day, then that definitely is going to involve entanglement. But uh, frankly, I don't think it's, I've, I've thought about this a bit. It's, it's hard to come up with, honestly, like a, an obvious everyday phenomenon that's like definitely because of like, like the fact that nature has this like weird holistic property that no one kind of, and that's sort of part of the reason for the strangeness. I mean, Einstein, when they wrote, when he wrote this paper, was like, this is so weird, it clearly isn't right. Which, like, I mean, Einstein walked down the street. He, <laughs> he didn't see a lot of examples where it was like, oh, crap. Clearly it was, uh, you know, it, it's a... Uh, so it's, my answer would, honestly, in this case, it's an example of a phenomenon that, like, is so counterintuitive that you almost have to, like, really work pretty hard to isolate it and, and, and make an observable thing. Okay. Like, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's fair. I guess, I guess it has to be fair because it's real. So I wonder like, <laughs> that now that we, wrong, but that's just right, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But yeah, since we, we kind of talked about the history a little bit and that it sounded like that this was sort of a theory in search of data, can you maybe talk a little bit about the, the data? Um, so if we, if we can't give an example or it's not easy to give an example of an everyday sort of experience, can you talk about maybe, uh, maybe even the first, uh, example that you came across where the light bulb really flipped on for you of like, oh, okay, like I get it. Like I, I understand that what what uh, entanglement is explaining in this this data or this observation uh, that that we're yeah. looking at. Yeah. So one honestly usually runs into this in terms of experiments that are specifically set up to demonstrate that entanglement is a real thing, and it's it's rare that there's like a thing, except in maybe some condensed matter systems. Um. Okay, let me retract that a little bit. So like anytime you have a system with like multiple quantum particles, and then there's a quantum effect happening that is not classical, there's almost certainly going to be some kind of entanglement physics happening there because in a sense, 
entanglement is like the big thing that is quantum and isn't classical. So that, uh, it, that, that that's my feeling anyway. So if, if you come up with a phenomenon, now you can't have a, sing, a single particle can't be entangled because it, that's just how it works. But um, it's usually possible to come up with a classical theory that could explain a single particle. But anytime you encounter anything that's like has multiple things interacting with each other and their like aggregate behavior is non-classical, then almost certainly there's some sort of entanglement physics happening. So there's that. But it might be hard to connect that in a visceral way to like the fact that when you observe certain things there, they come up as like both hands or something like that is, is the thing. Well, you're, we're talking, you know, this podcast is FAQ for, for AI and quantum. And, and if I heard correctly from something you just said, Adam, basically all things quantum have some kind or most things. It's hard to, to have absolutes, but most things quantum have some kind of component of entanglement to them. Is that is that a fair take? Most things quantum about multiple subsystems interacting. So an example of a quantum, like the superposition is not, this does not have it to anything to do with entanglement directly. And that can have, partly because that you can have superposition with a single, a single particle. A single particle can't be entangled because there's nothing for it to be entangled with. Um, go ahead. Well, I would say the converse would be true though. Entanglement has everything to do with superposition. Is that accurate? I mean, um, entanglement is like what, what comes for free when you write down the math and you have this thing called superposition. It's not obvious to me. I think you can write down superposition, superposing up to particle states that are not entangled. Um, I'd have to think that through, but it, again, it's an interesting theoretical question. Could you have an entangled a theory that has entanglement but not superposition? I'm not sure. That, that's like that's yeah. getting pretty hardcore theory. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> but, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I mean, I did, but I'm done. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually going to think about that later. Uh, I, I would not have if you had just asked me that point blank. I yeah. would have like my 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 gut answer would have been no. They're not they're not related concepts. But I'm not sure. I'd have to think about it more. <laughs> but, Okay. Well, we'll have um, you. We'll have you. We'll have you back on. This is not going to be the yeah. only time we're going to be talking yeah. about these things. <laughs> but I think you, yeah. like where you were, where you were kind of headed, Adam, is talking about like some concrete examples. So like we're all about applications and thinking about um, how quantum can be applied to to things like quantum computing, quantum sensing. You're mm -hmm. you're on the um, simulation and optimization team at Sandbox AQ. So maybe this is a good uh, transition into talking about uh, why entanglement matters when we're when we're talking about uh, applied quantum technology. Yeah, so I'm not allowed to use coins, but let's see. Um, <laughs> I'll use these little sticky notes. All right, so like, I mean, the typical, I think the most familiar example is the EPR experiment itself. So let's just like describe how this works. So you have like a source of particles or something. Let's have it be photons. So we're going to shoot, you know, like I'm going to like kind of Kamehameha some photons out of my hand here. <laughs> and then like the photons are either going to be, you know, pink or orange. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to set up a system where if one of them is pink, then the other has to be orange. There, there is, there's just no way around it. There are a lot of like big, <laughs> there's a fair bit of elaboration that has to be done to set this up. So let me review. There's going to be a photon source and it's going to shoot two photons out. And they'll be sticking up to the photons. And the photons are either allowed to be pink or orange. So this is going to stand in for them having two different polarization states, which is how this is typically set up. But that's yet another concept you have to understand. So I'm going to stick with pink or orange. That sounds good. Um, yeah. <laughs> there. Um, okay. So now in, this is where entanglement comes in. So like in quantum mechanics, we could have a situation where let's just say there's only one photon now. So I could have the photon be either pink or orange. And it could be like, say, 50-50 chance. So it's in my hand. You can't see. And then when we look at the particle, we check what it was, and oh, it was pink, or it might have been orange, whatever. Or it could you know the, what the problem is doesn't matter. The point is that in quantum mechanics, it's possible to make it random in some specified way of like which one comes up. Having looked at it, then it's now concretely whichever you saw. Okay. All right. So now we can set up two photons, and like they might be, they might have a chance of being either pink or orange. And they're coming out either way. All right, so this is like, I think what this would be like, let's say I set up a situation where it's like 50-50 that one photon is pink or orange. So this would be, I guess, this photon is now, we could say, in a superposition of the pink and orange basis, right? So if I decide to measure, do this pink or orange measurement, then the particle is superposed between those states, and that means that there's a 50-50 chance of being either one. However, and this is what I was getting at with the superposition thing, I could make a different measurement 
and then it would no longer be superposed because the, this this measurement could be such that it's like a definite result of this. So th th that's why I'm skeptical of the connection. But that's that's just a side point. So whatever. <laughs> there. Um, okay. So now I'm gonna. So now the question is: Let's just say there's one particle. It's either pink or orange. And okay, that's that's weird. But then you say, look, look. I mean, that's not really that weird at all. Clearly, what happened is that the particle just is pink even when it's in your hand, right? And then when I look at it. I mean, obviously it was pink because it always was pink. And the only thing that was weird about this is that you didn't know it was pink in the first place because you didn't know the effect of the source so much. So that's something that is possible. And there isn't really a way of making a system that isn't vulnerable to that criticism if you just have one photon. Now, if I have two photons, I'm going to send them out. And then someone's going to look at both of them, say. Now, it's possible in quantum mechanics to come up with now an entangled state where if one is pink, the other must be orange, or vice versa. So this one could be orange and this one's pink, and this one could be pink and this one's orange, but you, this is not possible and this is not possible. Let me pause for a sec. Is that clear? Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. There. <laughs> there. Um, so let's, this is not the same as saying a definite. So the quantum mechanical explanation, or at least in the Copenhagen interpretation, as they call it, is that the particle doesn't actually have a defined state. It's either pink or orange. But then when you looked at it, it's selective one. And now Einstein's criticism is like, okay, fair enough. But hey, what does that mean for this other guy? Because if I looked at this, it wasn't pink or orange. Now it's orange, then this one must be pink. But how could it have been made to be pink if it was arbitrarily far away? Like this, nothing in this argument tells me how far away they were. This could have been like a different galaxy or something. And that's causes problems relativity theory, but it's also just weird intuitively. That no matter, that like being arbitrarily distant from each other, it would be possible to somehow affect something just by looking at a different thing. And Einstein said, that, you know, that violates this principle of locality that I based my whole life around. So I'm either going to throw myself on my pen or whatever, or we've got to conclude that quantum mechanics is incomplete. Okay, so that's that's the EPR paradox, and that's the EPR experiment. And you can do this. I mean, in principle, you could do this experiment. You can reason. Honestly, I think a normal person kind of probably could these days. It's not that hard to get the components. So you would get like a beam splitter. It can shoot photons out with different polarization states. And then you would get like a screen that is either pointing one way or the other. And like if a photon is polarized this way, it's going to get blocked by the screen. If it's polarized this way, it goes through. And you can set things up so like whether it's zigzagging like this or zigzagging like that, behaves in just the same way as the pink or orange stuff. And we'll probably cost like 100 bucks to set this experiment up. So it's not that crazy. But well, Adam, so I have a question about like the vulnerability for the single photon state, the single photon experiment. Can you talk a little bit more about like why is the two photon state not vulnerable to that? Because as you just explained, one one takeaway that I could have is that w the one was always orange and the other one was always pink. And mm -hmm. you just looked at the one of them. And so it was always that way. And the other one was always the other way. Why Why is there potentially some switching going on here with the one that you're not observing? Yeah, so that comes from John Stuart Bell's analysis of the same experiment, or comparable experiment, and it's related to a theorem also due to Bell called Bell's theorem. So Bell analyzed the experiment, his name is Bell, and the theorem is also called Bell's theorem, and Bell's theorem concerns yet another thing called Bell's inequality. These are all different concepts, but they're... Okay, so Bell basically wrote down, like, let's say nature works the way Einstein wants it to. So, and he wrote down two different postulates. So one is that the paper is such that it's all that it was either pink or orange in the first place. That's called realism. The other is that nature is such that it's not possible to like call your grandma on the phone if she lives in the Andromeda galaxy. So it's not possible for the, the paper to all instantly signal to its correspondent. So what Bell does is derive a contradiction between those two claims. Or what he actually shows is that if those two claims simultaneously hold, then a certain inequality must be respected of, of measurements upon the papers. So if you, what he, and the, the experiment he proposes is fairly clever. You, you, instead of, this requires a little bit more quantum formalism, but like there, he, he chooses measurement bases that are randomly selected. So instead of just select measuring between orange or pink, he starts measuring also randomly selected intermediate states between orange and pink. Um, and it's hard. I mean, I have constructed this example such that there's only two possible outcomes, which makes it kind of disanalogous with the situation I'm trying to propose, unfortunately. But if I were really measuring photon polarizations, they're going this way. 
then I could measure, I could choose to measure such that, like I could check if they're going this way or this way, those are two opposite outcomes. But I could just as well check if I were, they were going diagonally or the opposite, or I could or I could rotate and measure any way I wanted. And so what Bill does is instead of just checking the two bases where the superposition was arranged, he randomly selects between any possible random basis. And then he derives a country, then he derives a theorem, an inequality, where if, um, if the photons behave such that they have a definite, I guess, I guess the way of putting it is they behave classically, then there's an inequality that the compared measurements have to respect. That's called Bell's inequality. So you can do this experiment like a bajillion times and collect all the times you got one outcome with the left photon and one outcome with the right, and then check how that compared to the aggregate. And you'll find, if the theory behaves classically, that it respects an inequality called Bell's inequality. That's an experiment you can do. So that's postulate one. Then postulate two is locality, and postulate three is realism. And then the theorem says that only, um, at most two of these things can simultaneously be true. Um, so then you go off and you do an experiment, and this has been done now with increasing sophistication, that basically demonstrates there are still a couple of possible loopholes, but they're pretty exotic. But I think most people, I mean, and it's, and it, you know, it's, ultimately it's an experiment. There are loopholes due to the fundamental fact that nature isn't like platonic and so on. But like even given that, there are some there's some like statistical noise that could still account for Bell's inequality being respected still. But I think most the common feeling is that the inequality has pretty much been violated. So the experiment's been done. It's been done many times with quite large experiments with photons separated by many kilometers. Um, and basically the answer is Bell's inequality is violated. So that means that if you believe the theorem, which you should because it's a theorem, then either locality is possible or realism is possible and not both. Wait, let's say what those words mean. When you say yeah. realism, you're referring to this idea of I have my photon in my hands and, it, and it's either pink or orange, whether I know it or not. Yeah, I'd actually make it more expansive than that. It's like, it's, so it's, 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 realism is like whether there is any kind of deterministic agency responsible for the pinkness or the orangeness. So it okay. could mean that there's like a pre, it could mean that there's a pre-selection. That would be one example. Another example would be like a mediating force of some kind. So like if the two, if you look at the photon and then it like sends a little like photon bullet out to the other one, mm -hmm. that would also, that would also be an example of realism. Mm -hmm. Because you're looking for some additional cause beyond what's like stated in quantum mechanics to, to account for the fact that things happened the way they did. Great, good. Um, and, then, and then locality. I locality mean. means that the signaling is bounded by a maximum speed. So like it it could be that you can shoot photon bullets, but they can go infinitely fast. So you can just and then then that doesn't that's not ruled out by the theorem. And in fact, there are interpretations of quantum mechanics which are not popular, but they're out there. Which basically say that that's how it works. Like there's this big, I mean, so one is Bohmian mechanics. So there's this big guiding field thing, and it just doesn't care about the speed of light or whatever or any speed. And uh, that means that, and and I think that can be a tempting solution, especially to non-physicists. That's like I just I really hate using the word speed of light for maximum speed. But like, why should you care that there's a maximum speed? Well, it's because you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to get out of the theorem that way. Like you were like, okay, like there's an underlying reality, fair enough. So I can predict the future if only I knew this additional piece of information. But then the cost of that is that things can communicate with each other arbitrarily far away, which means that there could be like someone on the moon right now or further away from the moon, say in like a different galaxy, who's like, you know, writing something down. And that could be what's responsible for the fact that your wife left you or something, right? Like, so like you can't predict reality by looking at anything in your vicinity because the whole world is just infinitely connected with each other. That, that would be the consequence of getting rid of locality. So either way you do this, you end up with a situation where there's either because everything is infinitely connected, even things you can't see because they're too far away from you, or because there just is no underlying reality, it's just not possible to, um, to assign a deterministic explanation to the randomness you see in quantum mechanics. And that's the takeaway that like that. That's, that, my that, that's why I care about it. <laughs> no, that's interesting. So, um, so like zooming to like where we are right now uh, with, with theory and experiments and things like that. What I think I hear you saying is that, um, that essentially 
the, the entanglement is real, that there, that there is something going on with these photons, these orange and pink photons, where the, before you observe the first one, it really could be either of them with some, it could be either pink or orange at some prob probability. And when you observe it, the other one, which also could be pink or orange with some probability, sort of snaps into one one reality as you observe the the initial one. Is that right? The snaps into parts a little controversial. There are there, so that's like that that sort of language, and I've used it before. Is like very specialized in a Copenhagen interpretation, and there are other interpretations that don't have like wave function collapse, which are still consistent with Mel's theorem. I would say, like many worlds, is an example. Um, so there's like an infinite number of universes in which the photon goes up one or the other. And then, you know, I, don't, I forget how this works, but <laughs> so basically there's like many different deterministic universes that are individually deterministic, but like somehow your consciousness ends up in one of them. And like that, that anyway, that, that, you have to ask, um, I, I'm not super familiar with the formalism, but it is an interpretation that's reasonably popular. Yeah, we'll have, um, to have, that uh, one... we'll, we'll have somebody on to talk about uh, <laughs> many, many worlds. Yeah. Uh, so actually, I, but I like the way you put it. It's like it's a little less abstract than Bell's. Like the purpose of Bell's inequality is essentially the premise. It's like the hypothesis that that is that entanglement is real. Basically, that's like a simpler way of putting it. So like, there's a, Bell comes up with an experimental protocol that like basically shows that there is entanglement, and he's saying, and then he derives an inconsistency between two apparently reasonable properties of reality and that observation. So it's real. So entanglement is, uh, we can say that, that the majority of folks out there studying this have come to the conclusion that entanglement is real, but the actual sort of way that it operates, like the, the nuts and bolts of how it really works is not fully understood. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Except that like, I mean, it's kind of, it's different from like not being understood in the way that like, you know, the contents of a distant star system are not understood. It's like, it kind of seems like there might just be no way to understand it at all, right? Like, it's it's like we've written down the mathematical formalism um, and like we understand how it works in every conceivable sense that like physics or mathematics would furnish, apparently. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it still just doesn't make any sense to us. And like, it's kind of like trying to figure out a way to like wrap your head around it that is like a bit more than just like writing down a bunch of calculations. That's what's missing. And it's not really clear whether that's even something to look for. I think people argue about this a lot there. And that's probably some of the fascination around entanglement is that yeah. what you've just said. It's like this curious thing that exists, but it's hard to understand. And how one could go about trying to understand it is also yeah, not clear. And it, it, it points to some extent to like a possible limit to like the ability of physics to answer the sorts of questions that humanity wants it to answer, right? It's like, I mean, I know when I went into physics, it's like, okay, I'm going to learn all these equations and I'll like understand the world better. And I did, but then it's like, Hey, look, there's this big thing that like we all apparently have completely specified with physical methods and like, it still doesn't make any sense. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> like, and, okay. And, and, and the interesting thing though, but, is on top of all of this mystery, it's not like entanglement is just this curious thing you put on your shelf that you look at every now and then and puzzle, but you actually can make use of it to do practical things to the point where entanglement is even described as a quantum resource in that's the true. space of quantum computing. Yeah. So could you elaborate on that? What what do people mean by that? Yeah. I mean, that's meant kind of in the like literal language of information theory. So there's a few ways you can point at this, but Essentially, let's say that I'm going to use my, you know, red, let's bring my sticky notes back. So let's say I'm going to use these to build like a computer, right? So I can store different yes or no propositions with like this. So let's just, I'm just going to decide, I have to make an encoding. So I'm going to say this means yes and this means no. Uh, this, this feels more like yes to me, doesn't it? This means yes and this means no. <laughs> so orange is going to be yes and pink is going to be no. Um, fine. And then I can have another one. And now I can answer, you know, two questions. But if they're entangled, then there's additional information stored in the whole. So like the individual subsystems might tell you something, but there's also this extra information that like just looking at the subsystems wouldn't tell you about, about the entanglement. And it turns out to be possible to use that extra information as, as, a, as a computing resource. You can use it to send, you can use it to this dense coding. So you can send basically, you know, if I could only send two bits worth of information with two, I can send four with two that are entangled. And then there's various quantum algorithms 
which implicitly use entanglement is less obvious than how they do, but, but they use it basically to perform computations, certain special computations and any computations that would uh, not be possible classically. And, and I ultimately, think this is, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Ultimately, that's because entanglement is providing additional information than would be possible for non-entangled subsystems. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of algorithms, like teleportation falls into this category. Yeah, yeah quantum, definitely. I mean, yeah, teleportation involves very directly because you uh, involves manipulating various spell states, actually they're called, which are prepared by analogy with the spell experiment. Well, definitely teleportation is a topic we'll, we'll have to hit. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll start to maybe think about hitting that next. But so from what I'm hearing from you, Adam, like there's definitely an application to quantum computing uh, where you can sort of store more information using fewer bits or qubits in, in this case. Um, is, there, is there something outside of quantum computing that entanglements can, uh, can be practically applied to? Yeah, I mean, quantum sensing certainly makes use of entanglement. Um, we're at the SNO team very interested in tensor network algorithms, which are formulated to take advantage of a entanglement as a computational resource without actually having physical entanglement. So you use the computer to simulate entanglement. You're still using a classic computer, there's no real entanglement. But this can often reveal a structure of the problem you're trying to attack that would not have been obvious with a classical, a pure, it's still a classical algorithm, but with a, with a traditional algorithm, I'll say. Um, so you can write certain algorithms in a way that that reveals the entanglement structure of, of the quantum computation. And then it's often possible to find regimes of the problem that can be solved classically once this approach has been exposed, basically. So, so things can be done, for example, simulating quantum systems, certain special quantum systems. And recently there's been work showing that more dis, more, more, like more abstract computation tasks, like think Fourier transforms or, or, or certain optimization problems can be, and this is still somewhat theoretical stuff, but can, can be in certain special problem cases accelerated by tensor network means because of the entanglement structure and because you've revealed an, an extra um, a, a class of the problem that can be uh, treated with a, a faster algorithm than would be used generically. And you didn't know that because of, until you look at the entanglement. And yeah, we're we're not going to get too deep into tensor networks here, but that's probably another topic we could get into. But I think a takeaway that I'm picking up on is that even though you're using a classical system to simulate entanglement, you're not actually you don't actually have entanglement, but you're sort of inspired by that quantum phenomenon and, and able to use that in a network to actually do something useful in a simulation. Am I am I sort of thinking about yeah. that the right way? Because of, and it's it's connected actually to the more philosophical angle, because a reaction to the kind of like, know, has been to like develop reformulations of quantum theory that are based on information instead of like on, instead of directly on like physical things you can like trip over. So it's like there's this whole quantum information theory, they call it, which is very analogous to classical information theory, which checks types make very precise and develop a mathematical formalism of like exactly what it means for entanglement to be a resource and like what kinds of knowledge in the precise sense can be obtained by systems when entanglement is present. So you can think of entanglement as a physical thing that is in, in systems you can trip over just as you can information, but also just like information, you can reverse that reasoning and think of it as something that exists in like the platonic world of like forms and shapes and stuff, and then kind of work backwards from there and, and connect that to physics. It's equivalent. But but that's how the connection to computing happens is you're thinking about a computer in the end is like a physical system that you've tricked into behaving as an information one kind of right so, so the idea is that essentially by using quantum information theory you might be able to do tasks that weren't possible when you restricted your attention to classical information i think it's amazing that we can not we myself excluded that people such as yourself adam can make use of this thing called entanglement despite the fact that there's lots that we don't know about it. Um, it oh, this is a very bad analogy, but I was thinking of, oh, it's like when students take a calculus class and they get A's, even though they didn't understand what they were doing. Like, so they don't really get it, but they still can do really good things. In that case, getting an A or, or here actually having impactful technology. I think that's amazing. Great. Well, uh, this is this has been like a little bit mind blowing. I think for for me, Adam, like really, I appreciate you going through some of this stuff. I haven't heard these explanations uh, before, and I feel like that in some ways I understand things more, and in some ways I think I understand things less, which I think is part of that sort of uh, like uh, creative 
uh, cognitive dissonance that you need to kind of go through. It's just like, uh, like lifting weights, uh, trying to build muscles, you can confuse yourself a little bit and then try Muscle to, confusion. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, 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 the entanglement to quantum is like the, the P90X for your, for your, for your brain. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. Is there anything as we sort of wrap up that, um, that you want to leave folks that have made it this far in the conversation, anything you want to leave with them, um, as they, as they sort of walk away from maybe their first, uh, sort of exposure uh, to this idea of entanglement. Yeah. No, you can read like Brian Green. I think it's pretty good. Fabric of the Cosmos. Yeah. What, what was it? Fabric, Fabric of the Cosmos. The, Cosmos. the elegant user, the elegant universe, which is about string theory is the one that people usually read. And I don't think it's as good. The Fabric of the Cosmos is the one I like. Partly because I'm not a string theorist and I don't care about string theory all that much. Not that it's not a bad thing. I just personally don't find it that interesting. Um, I want to second that, though. Not the string theory thing, but I also read The Fabric of the Cosmos. And I thought it was yeah. very well written. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good it. book. I so, quite like yeah. it. And yeah, then there's a third one, too, which I also didn't think was as good. It's not focused on cosmology. They're, they're, no, they're all three good books. But the second one, I think, is the best of the three. Hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely put that down in the in the show notes. And I'm, I'm the one person in this room that has not read that, so I think I know. Yeah. You gotta know get what, on what's it. on my on my list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you gotta get that muscle confusion going for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, productive, productive confusion. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for uh, for spending some time with us and and working through this. We'd love to have you back to talk uh, more about your your work at Sandbox AQ or other philosophical uh, slash sciencey things that uh, that you want to want to chat with us. Yeah, micro black holes. Yes, we'll definitely have to come uh, have you come back on and talk about micro black holes, which uh, I had not heard of before either. And, and now I'm like looking all, I'm looking around for them. But I think since they're micro, I probably won't be able to, to see them. If yeah, they're, they're pretty here. small. Pretty small. They, they might not exist, but if they did, they'd be really small. It'd be hard to find. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's a teaser if I've ever heard one before. So, uh, thank thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate it, and uh, and we'll we'll talk some more soon. I think that we'll definitely have to have you back on if you're if you're up for it. Thanks. Bye. All right. That was great. I'm so glad that we had a chance to bring Adam on board. There are a lot of things in there that I want to personally have time to think about deeply just in my own time. But I think even for the podcast, a few ideas were mentioned that could probably make really great episodes on their own. And maybe we should do this. But one thing Adam mentioned was, you know, polarization states of photons. I mean, what is that? People are probably familiar with the word polarization because of sunglasses, but what is really going on at the individual particle level? How did that really relate to entanglement? I think we should do a deep dive at some point later. Um, another thing that we could chat about that Adam brought up is this idea of Bell's theorem or Bell's inequality. I think this is a really fundamental part of the entanglement discussion. So probably we should we should chat about that at some point in the future. But maybe just to kind of wrap us up, I mean, you're really good at giving high-level explanations, I think, and kind of just summarizing, you know, like we've talked a, a, quite a long time about this complicated idea of entanglement. So, Adam, can you kind of just try your best at bringing us home <laughs> and kind of wrapping all of these ideas together? I guess it's only fair that you asked me that since I asked you at the beginning. So I you think did. Gonna... <laughs> that was pretty hard. I'm being nice <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. And I think yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, use the same construction that you did at the beginning because I think that that's the, uh, the, the work from Brian Green yeah. really helped me. And that's kind of what's in my head right now. And even, even before that, like, this is a big deal. Like, this really does feel profound that mm. this is like, this is not just theory. Um, like yeah. we can, we can prove that this is a, is a real phenomenon and we can use that phenomenon in quantum technology, yet we don't understand how it works and, and maybe we would never will. And there's mm. like some kind of acknowledgement of that. And that to me, from a scientist point of view, just feels yeah. really profound. So I want to sit with, <laughs> yeah, sit with that for a yeah. second. Yeah. But then, yeah, I mean, I think to try to like tie a bow on this, like I, I go back to the quote that you read in the beginning of this podcast about um, two objects, or, or we can talk about particles, but two objects separated by space, and they can influence each other by negotiating that space in some way, whether it's shouting or shining a light or like giving a wink and a nudge from far away or something like that. There has to be some kind of signaling um, in the world that we are used to, in the world that we experience. Yeah. And the concept of entanglement completely turns that on its head and says, yeah, those, those objects can be separated by space but they can influence each other without negotiating that space between them at all. 
And that is just something that, you know, is, is hard for me to wrap my mind around and really, really, truly try to understand. Like, like nobody send in a little message. Like there's not a message that we just can't see. Um, <laughs> right. Like there really is nothing going on there and the amount of space doesn't really matter. Um, and the answer seems to be, yeah, like there's, there's nothing going on between them and the amount of space really doesn't matter. And if you start to think about that, then this like almost science fiction realm starts to come into place about like what you could do with that, with, uh, with that sort of power, that, that technology, um, to be able to communicate regardless of sending, um, sending signals and regardless of how far apart those things are. So that's, uh, that's really, that seems like a really big deal. It's very interesting. Yeah, totally. And I personally love these kinds of mysteries. I think it's fascinating. This is one of not entanglement per se, but these kind of deep mysteries in the universe are one of the things that drew me actually to math, believe it or not, in the first place all of these years ago. So I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about one of these topics today. And now it's just making me look forward even more to our next discussion here on the FAQ podcast. Uh, we'll see what that discussion is. I guess I would say to listeners, stay tuned and you'll find out. That's right. Well, we'll see you soon. See y'all. 